Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity financially assisting musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community and to bring comfort, joy and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm delighted that my guest this week is the South African soprano Golda Schultz, soon to grace our screens as the star of The Last Night of the Proms. She talks to me about reimagining the proms for a TV audience, about classical music inspiring a little girl from the southernmost tip of the African continent, how small dreams and simply wanting to grow up to be a good citizen in society have turned into pinch-me moments, about female representation in the creative industries, how music is a commentary on what is happening in society now, not just in the past, and fostering difficult discourse in a safe, brave, human space that is beyond political or economic agendas, and also how classical music has a responsibility to be a mirror on the society it serves. She also talks about the extraordinary community she grew up in in South Africa, where food means family, and, moving forwards, about fostering a culture of hope. Now to introduce my guest. Praised internationally for her passionate and technically brilliant performances, South African soprano Golda Schultz has a clear, pure tone and a sparkling personality with a ready sense of humour, according to the New York Times. Equally at home in leading operatic roles in the world's major opera houses, as she is as featured soloist with the world's foremost orchestras and conductors, Golda is making waves as one of the most exciting new voices on the classical music scene today. I'm delighted that she now joins me. Welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Hello, Golda. I'm so thrilled to see you. How are you doing? I'm fine. I was like about to take a schluck of my coffee. <laughs> mm. How are you this fine morning in England? Grim here. It's raining oh, a bit. It's the same it's here. 
we're together in some ways so lovely because I do miss seeing you but you've had a very exciting week and I'm very excited about it too because oh. now I finally tell people that you <laughs> are the big star for the last night of the proms in England which is such a massive accolade no pressure eh no um, <laughs> how are you feeling about it all I think it's still kind of still dawning on me that it's all happening because like you know how it is when the proms like come to you to like do like like we want you to be in the proms but somehow this was even more stressful because like we want you to be in the proms but you want you to sing on the last night you can't tell anybody you can't tell your family you can't tell your friends and if you do we're gonna tell them that you're lying and I was like (laughs) so I kind of just like spent a lot of months just like in panic and quiet and every time people would talk about the proms and what are you doing for the summer I just be like I don't know (laughs) bye (laughs) and then COVID happened and then it was really I don't know what's happening so you know the announcement was supposed to happen in what was it april may like the first announcement and then like we got an email saying we can't announce and then the next announcement supposed to happen in may we can't announce and the next and like eventually i just told my agents i was just like listen guys just tell me when they will announce i don't need to hear about when you won't announce just tell me if and when they do announce and i'll just try to make myself available to people and then we got an email saying, so they're going to announce, be prepared. And I clearly was not prepared because I literally spent like three days or two, three days just like in interviews with people talking about the problems. And I was like, one, I don't think I remembered how to do interviews anymore <laughs> because you're just like, I don't know how to answer that question. What are you asking me? What? <laughs> so you kind of like, I just felt like a little slow. And then I needed 24 hours of sleep afterward to just calm my brain down because my brain was just like high octane high octane and then my body just collapsed (laughs) into a heap so hopefully things will improve now that we've gotten over the first hurdle it'll definitely calm down however (laughs) what will calm down is the speculation about what you're going to wear really is that like a really big deal for people really ill oh gosh but this is also the thing, like, we find ourselves in very strange times because it's not like you can go to, like, designers and be like, so, hey, Vivian Winston, what's happening, girlfriend? How's that address? Oh, I don't know. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, you can't, like, walk into designers' studios and stuff and, like, ask for stuff because, like, no social distancing. Hello. So um, I don't know yet. There are some kinds of dresses that I still haven't worn in, like, out of my repertoire of concert dresses but at the same time I also recognize that it's like it's a big deal so and the other thing there's stuff to look forward to and we're like we're planning the program and we're talking about how we can you know because this is such a strange time to be doing a concert with no audience right now and an orchestra that is socially distant but we get, but like what I'm kind of excited about is that I get to possibly just run around and cause mayhem and havoc in the Royal Albert Hall. Like, Are you too? Anyway. I'll just be like, how about I stand up here at the back and like a camera just zooms in on me. And like, I just feel like excited about like those kinds of creative ways that we can like use this space. I mean, it's such a special space. It's, it's enormous. It's, it's a shame not to have a full audience. I mean, when I sang at the first night of the proms last year. Yeah was completely full and the atmosphere is extraordinary your experience of it therefore would be different but that doesn't mean to say it's any less sort of valid in some ways it is exciting that you can do pretty much whatever you like I, I know I think there's like lots of fun things that we can that we're looking forward to just trying out and doing something new and 
you know, reimagining. I think what's also essential is that when we're thinking about the context that we find ourselves in in the world, we as artists and creatives and like across the creative industry, I think more so now than ever, we have to have more intersectionality. So it means that like TV does need to talk to live theater. I mean, you know, you, you saw the whole world like light up like a Christmas tree when Hamilton went uh, streaming online because it, it meant people could have that access. So that means for me, it kind of does mean that we all need to actually be reaching out across industries and asking like, right, guys, how can we make this a possibility for an audience still being able to practice our crafts the way we're used to practicing our crafts, extend ourselves in new directions like those kinds of things are exciting and I think what we stand a chance of doing in those last two weeks of live proms is we stand a chance of reimagining what live theater live performance can be beyond the scope of what we're used to and still be impactful and not just be consumptive where it's just people consume consume without actually thinking and taking cognizance of the poignancy of the moment. So I think that's really, that's so exciting. Also extremely terrifying because you really kind of just have to be like, okay, so like what could this program really be? And then the program really starts to mean something. And Dahlia and I, the conductor, we've really been talking about like, what do we want it to mean? two women on stage, the last night of the proms, like two like women who aren't necessarily from, well, one of them definitely not from European culture and like one of them not from English culture. Like what do we have to say about like classical music? But it's also where exactly what classical music exists for because we prove the point that it's universal, that art and theater, it speaks to everyone. You know, it spoke to a little kid from the tip of the African continent and it spoke to another kid in like the Ukraine and, and in Finland. And, and we all come together and we're doing this thing and we're doing it for a beautiful public and we're excited. So I think that there's lots to be excited about even beyond what are you wearing. I think there's so many other new questions that people are going to be asking beyond what are you wearing. But I'm definitely going to be wearing clothing. That is a must. And also exciting because you must at times sort of pinch yourself this is a, as a girl from the tip of Africa, the bottom tip. Growing up, you could have never imagined where you'd end up. Yeah, I don't think I did. I really, my dreams, I feel like my dreams were very small and reasonable. I just wanted a job. And for me, it was like, if you don't get a job in this industry, then that means you're not meant to be in this industry. And then you go and you find something else to do. And a dream is a lovely thing to have, but... Sometimes a dream is just a dream. Oh, it sounds like a lyric to a song. Um, <laughs> when I remember the, 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 actually the first pinch me moment that I've had in my career had to be when I debuted in Salzburg. Because exactly like what I said previously, just a minute ago, where I said I had very reasonable dreams. I just want a job. I don't need to be singing on the biggest, best stage in the world. I just want to sing and earn money, pay my rent, pay my taxes, be a, you know, a a member of a society where I'm not taking anything from the society, but I'm adding to it and I'm adding value. That was 
that is my 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 idea of success. That is a successful life for me, plain and simple. But then 2000 and, um, 2014 happens and I get asked to go to Salzburg to do Rosenkavalier. Was it 2015? Sorry, 2015. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't remember dates. Um, <laughs> Um, so there I am and I'm in Salzburg where, you know, Sound of Music was shot and the, 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 the organizers of the Salzburg Festival, they find out that I'm a huge um, Julie Andrews fan. So they speak to the people at the hotel where they shot like the outside scenes from Sound of Music and like the house with, you know, the Von Trapp's with. They write to the fan, to the people that the managers, and they're like, she really loves the the story, and we just want to like have, have her have like a happy time while she's here in Salzburg. Would you be okay if like she came and she stayed for one night? And they're like, of course, and like, and like they invite you in, and like they show you the Julie Andrews suite, and you get to run around there. And I just and then like not on top of that, on top of that like amazing experience, I'm also then seeing in basically the house of Karayan, like where he like made his great art. And I'm out there singing with like some of some of the best singers that I know today. And they're calling me colleague. They're, co- they're talking to me like I know what I'm talking about. And, and I just realized I literally looked around and I was just like, wait, I didn't imagine this. This was not on my list of things I want to achieve. This was not on, like singing in Salzburg was not on my bucket list. Singing at the singing at the Met, singing at La Scala, these were not things that I was just like, yeah, I want to achieve these things. These are the goals. I literally was like, these were beyond my list. So then it really, it really kind of warped my worldview for a while because I just was like, I actually didn't know how to cope for a bit because it was just, it was all too much. It was actually overwhelming. And so I think that's also one of the reasons that I've also been able to stay grounded because for me, everything that's happened to me seems a little too fantastical. That I'm just like, okay, so like when I wake up from my coma that I've been in for 15 years, this will have been a lovely dream, (laughs) you know, and then I will just go back to my normal life that I should have been leading and I will actually find myself awake in a, in a, in a vet, you know, matrix style. You're one of the people that uh, I do think there are times when it's been quite amusing how far you've gone, (laughs) even you've shocked yourself, like the three different conductors, three different sets of concerts in just over a week at the LA Phil. Yes, literally I did three so I did three different concerts. I debuted with two new conductors. I debuted two new pieces all in a space of 72 hours. And it was literally I had rehearsal on I had rehearsal on a Thursday and then Friday they ask you, oh, we need you to sing with Zubin Mehta and do Mahler too. Saturday, you have to do Sibelius with, and then Saturday and Sunday are the things you're actually contracted for. And they go, so don't forget, Friday night's the concert with Zubin Mehta. Saturday night, there's a concert with um, Esa Pekka Salonen and you're doing Luan Notar. So you're singing Finnish in front of a Finnish conductor. Good luck with that. And then, oh, by the way, you're also doing Beethoven 9 at 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoon afternoon with Gustavo Dudamel and this is your first time singing Beethoven 9 rock on and it was just (laughs) by the end of that weekend I was like but you know it was also what was quite epic and beyond all of that stuff was the fact that I got to I got to do that with my parents my parents watched 
that whole weekend. And I think that was the, that for me was the best part. It wasn't even like the singing with like great conductors, which I'm like, hello, Subin Mehta conducting Mahler, just like such a luxury. But really it was that moment where you were just like, my parents are seeing this. My parents are watching me, one, not be a leech on society. So my parents really know that I actually do have a real job and people respect me at work. So that's like bonus. But like, they're also like in this crazy whirlwind with me and it's just so fun just like watching them also try to navigate it while I'm trying to navigate it and I've still got to pretend like I know what's going on when in actual fact I had no I still like even now if you had to ask me like what are the what are the things I remember most from that it's I think it's just literally having Dudamel and Essa Pekka sign my scores and I'm still like needing Zubin Mehta to sign my Mala 2 score so if you're listening Zubin Mehta please Sign my score. Like <laughs> the, thing, the thing I love most, though, above all of the work stuff, was the look on the photos of your dad's face. The pride of your father it was just so lovely to see. Your mum and dad must think, wow, when they look at your life, they must look at their lives in South Africa and look at your lives. And some, to a certain degree, they don't compare, do they? It's true. They don't like, they're, they're very reasonable in the sense that they don't, they understand that they, their life experience doesn't really fully equate to what's going on. But they are also still my parents, and I will always ask them for advice, even if it's subjects that they feel are out of their, their, their sphere of knowledge. But, I, but I'm also, I won't ask them in a way that will make them feel uncomfortable. I really will like ask the question in a way that they under, that they can bring it to a level where they understand. So for me, you know, talking about whether or not you're going to do a job or travel like to Japan, blah, blah, blah. I literally just talk to my dad like about those kinds of things. And I'm like, does it make reasonable sense just in terms of the trajectory of the career that I'm trying to formulate and the relationships that I'm trying to build with people for the future, for what I potentially would like my future career to be? Because like, let's be frank, you can't be a singer forever and especially as a woman you can't be a singer forever because (laughs) unfortunately new composers aren't exactly writing writing shows for old ladies I think Samuel Barber is probably like the last one and like not even that such an old lady part so I'm just like "Mm, there you go so the day somebody starts writing like operas like you know the ladies in lavender I'll be like right I'm back let's ride I'm really trying to convince can, like composers to like actually write pieces for women over like legitimately over the age of like 45. And, like whereas like you know like the marshland really isn't still like seen as well she's a 36 year old woman so you know for her age that was that was old and he was like guys can we please just can we move beyond can we move into cougar town like let's go there <laughs> for real. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for that and certainly in Hollywood it started I noticed that actually in films, there are more representations of not old women, but older women. Um, And it's really because more women have stepped into the space of production. More women have stepped into the space behind the desk, so to speak. And they're demanding stories that speak to them. And I think that's also something that we as women in our industry seem to also forget that we have power. We Because there are, I'm very sorry, there are more female singers that I know of than, than I know of male singers. And for me, that means that 
Therefore, there need to be more than just dialogue of the Carmelites for us all to be singing together. And and that can't be like the only special experience that we ever have in our lives. And so when I'm, and so what I also am trying, what I'm also trying to do is that I'm also trying to like create content that I want. So, you know, my my pianist and I, um, Jonathan, we're, we're currently working on like new recital programs and we're actually like, we've actually decided, well, there's, we want a new commissioned work, but we don't want the parameters to be set by the venue that we go to. So we were like, right, we don't have a lot of money, but if we can negotiate with a composer and a, and a poet to like work out a, like a payment system, then we are willing to invest in someone else's craft to add to our repertoire. So it's about us investing in the kind of stories that we want, you know, and I think that that's so much creative power that we as creatives we as women need to actually start taking back for ourselves which actually excites me that's something I've done in particular with Cheryl Francis Hode she wrote uh, One Nice Stand which is an equivalent to a modern woman's version of Frau Niebel und Leben with poems by Sophie Hanna who has written the new Poirot novels uh, for the Agatha Christie estate so there's definite currency in that I think you come out with a product that's a very different thing from Firstly, what you thought it would be to start with. But secondly, you feel ownership of it in a completely different way. And I definitely think it's the way forward. Yeah, and I think like the more, and especially now, like when I'm looking at what's happening around the world, like I'm just like, this isn't actually kind of the best time to be creative because what we as creative artists we we have access to paralateral thinking so so when like we're able to do more creative problem solving so I'm just like so for me there's so much opportunity in these moments it's an actual opportunity in for composers to really like actually instead of going to houses and saying oh what stories would you like me to tell actually going to artists and saying so what's the story that you'd love to see told coming to people like like and you know and for us as singers to also go up to people and say so this is a story I'm interested in telling I I will put my name behind it and like be a character even if it's a small character just so that the story can be told and I want you that this librettist to tell the story with me and I think this is the composer that we should approach and like let's all like because like nobody's paying us for any of our time right now. So let's use our time to actually create our passion projects. So when we step out of however long this period of life lasts, we step out with positivity, with like a bucket load of creativity and I hate to use the word content, but we step out with like commentary and just, you know, valid discourse coming out through art. I was telling somebody um, when talking about the proms, I was saying what is missing from the creative industry, especially our classical music industry, is that we've forgotten how much music is a commentary on what's happening in society and how creative arts actually fosters difficult discourse in a safe space and a brave space that is not political, that is beyond a gender, but really in a human space. And that's what art does. And therefore, we as singers, our classical music institutions, we should not be on the back of the wave. We should be ahead of the curve of the discourse because we have to remind our purpose is to remind people that there is a human discourse that needs to happen that is beyond a political beyond an economic beyond 
a, beyond a social, a human discourse of human to human relation and how they, from there finding our way through to creative solutions and collaboration. We have the capacity to have those discussions in a safe space and to a certain degree, therefore, potentially control the cultural agenda. And certainly you see a lot of a, of a worry. Um, it's usually right-wing governments that struggle with that. Liberal governments wouldn't struggle, but a, a more right-wing government want to control what's out there. So um, I think that gives us a responsibility even more than normal. Yeah. Right now. Absolutely. Exactly what you say. Even more so today than, than ever before. In any society where the arts does not thrive, that society does not last. Because there is no record of it as a society. Because there are no record of the people and their, their joys, their hopes, their aspirations. Like, why do you think we know so much about, like, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks? Why do we know so much about the ancient Romans? Because their culture survived. Record of their culture, record of their humanity has survived. Why do we know so much about the Mesopotamian? Record of, why do we dig in the dirt? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like what people, what you're talking about and, that, that, and that's that political notion that you can control the human inside. You can control the humanist of someone else, the humanist within all of us. I dig in the dirt to understand who I am. I find it the most fascinating thing, like when you see kids playing in the dirt and like a child being completely fascinated. I think there are no children that are actually bored during, that have been bored during this pandemic, honestly, because it's like the idea of getting to like put their hands in the dirt, like make a garden or just go outside and play and use their creativity and imagine the world. Like all of those things are so basic and based to who we are as human beings and like getting to foster that is is so necessary but i i don't i don't trust a society that doesn't want to keep a record of who they were and who they are the good and the bad i'm not saying we only remember all the good about ourselves hell no like let's be clear you know you got l'incoronazione di popea nero was a crazy dude but we've got, but like, there's the record and, it, and it's like this creative, this creative piece of imagination, which is kind of loosely based on some like political drama, melodrama happening, but it's giving you this like human context that you can just be like, oh, dude was crazy. But like, I get it. You had some crazy mother, mother, son issues. Okay. Maybe you had like a mental illness too, <laughs> you know, and like. And all of these things, like, and then we get to relate to all these people. And so, like, what, what I think art allows people is a chance to relate. You know, it's the same way that, you, you know, when we're talking about things like food. We all need to eat. It's like, it's just a question of, like, what do you like to eat? What is most common in your family? Like, and that's, but, like, the fact that we all need to eat, we all like to eat, that's what keeps us together. The choices of what you eat and what you don't eat, those are, for me, those are just like eh, extra fluff. But the need to eat and the need for consuming food to survive, that need for fuel, that's some way where you can relate. But the rest of that stuff doesn't hurt anybody else. Like if you just want to eat vegetables and like no meat, that's not hurting me. But it doesn't, you know, but me eating meat shouldn't hurt you either. Like we have to find a way to like respect each other. And that's like kind of how I look at the world. I'm always, I'm, I think like I'm always that person that's like, 
I usually play devil's advocate in like most conversations, but like, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I always like, I always like look at other people's perspectives. And I think that's like a lot of what artists do. We can actually empathize with another point of view because we have to. And I think that's actually why art is so essential because it forces people to empathize with, like it forces an audience to empathize with another viewpoint and another perspective, but they also get to do it in the privacy of the dark where nobody's judging their experience, which I kind of also think is quite essential. Why I also think live theater won't ever die because people need to sit in the dark and hear stories. It's just plain and simple. Yeah. And reminds us who we are. That we're all, we all have like hopes and dreams and we're all trying to, you know, we're all trying to get at what we need and what we want in different ways, but we all want to be loved, cherished, taken care of. And it's why the arts and opera included in that should aim to be a mirror on the society that they exist in, which is why the campaigns that are going on currently about not just people of colour being better represented within theatre, but also people of all shapes and sizes, there's a real validity to all of that. It'll be interesting to see when things start to move again, whether we've witnessed a shift in attitude change from managements in particular, that, that's yet to be seen. What is interesting, though, and you mentioned it already, is that food has a massive link to music, that food, food and music are very tied together because there is a cultural tie. What food does, music does, and vice versa, gives us community, gives us health, um, where you'll get mental health from the arts, you get physical health from food. It gives us a sense of belonging. It gives us a feeling of love. And it's really been very fascinating running this whole project of Notes from Musicians' Kitchens, hearing the stories told by people, hearing what they have to say about their culture, not just their food culture, because their food is so wrapped up in where they've come from. Your culture in South Africa, of course, is is very different from European culture. (laughs) You also might want to finish the mouthful of the sandwich that you're eating. Done. <laughs> I think it's a fair representation of me. Like if I'm not singing, I'm probably eating or cooking. <laughs> like that's that's really like what I'm like. It's really been very. It's it's very interesting. No, like I get I get what you're saying. Like in our like for for our family, food is there's always a reason to be celebrating something. Like some some of my cousins, like even during lockdown in South Africa, like one of my cousins has started her own cooking show cooking travel show (laughs) where she's literally because she misses traveling on vacation so much she's just decided that she's like learning recipes and she's using her kitchen and she's doing these little cooking these cooking videos and then like sharing it with all of us and making us all very hungry and like wishing that we were there to like partake of the glorious glorious feast but it's really I remember I remember like so many family functions where it's not just about the food being out. It's also like making sure that the food is out in a nice way. So like when family function, when family's coming over, it's always the nice dishes and always the, the nice dishing, the nice serving spoons and get everything done on the server and make sure that like you have it set up so that people know the flow of the way that they need to eat you know, so it's like, and then like the salads and there's never just one salad. Like the thing that I find so interesting about being in the relationship with a Mediterranean person is that for them, for him, 
there's literally just two versions of salads and one of the versions of salads he just does not eat. It's either a green salad with his lettuce and tomato, balsamic vinegar, or if I, you know, or if we're unlucky, lemon juice, salt, olive oil, that's like a salad. If I'm really unlucky, there's not even tomato in it. It's just lettuce leaves. And I'm like, there, he's like, that's a salad. And then the other version, the other salad that exists in, in his mind is pasta salad, which he hates. But he, whereas for me, there's a plethora of salad in the world. There's hot potato salad, cold potato salad. There's coleslaw. There's no mayo coleslaw. There's carrot salad. There's onions and onions and tomato salad. There's also cucumber salad. And like in our family, we will make all of them at a barbecue and we will make them all for like Christmas lunch because you have to eat all of them. And woe betide you if your plate is not empty at the end of a meal because literally then aunts will be like, What's wrong with you? Are you sick? Why aren't you eating? <laughs> Why aren't you eating? <laughs> that's like always been the question. Like I remember that started with my, with our grandmother. You had to eat everything on your plate. And they dished, you know, they dished the plate high. And you had to be very creative about like if you couldn't finish something. So you'd always like go to your cousins and be like, can you take this? Or like if you didn't eat, like one of my cousins didn't eat potatoes. So she'd always just like, plop her potatoes onto someone else's plate. And then that person's like, I don't need green beans. And it's like, we just be passing food around. So food is pretty much tied to all my memories of family, which I think is the case for everybody. If you have like... Almost everybody. Yeah, almost um, everybody. The, the African culture of very <laughs> strong family ties and links and celebrations is very notable. It's really <laughs> talking to all my African friends you guys all say the same. And not only will it be that it's grandma's telling you off for not clearing your plate and auntie's having a comment about your hair and what you're wearing, yes. um, you'll then get the music and, and the, the constant bustle and noise of being in a big family gathering. And I think that's wonderful. So, yeah, so for me, I remember at my grandmother's house, like she, we, we never, the only time you ever ate a meal where there was like noise would be the dinner time when we would all eat dinner at her house with the tv on because we watched the news so my grandfather got to watch the news so we all just had to like sit with our plates and just like watch the news because that's what you got <laughs> whereas you know lunchtime was just us like I remember my grand would like literally she she when we when we spent summer vac- vacations there she would be she would start cooking. So my, my grandmother's my grandmother's house, there was no hot water. So there was always a pot of water boiling and there was always something cooking. So you, once you woke up, you had to like bath and bath yourself, like bathe yourself. And then you go outside to play until they call you in for breakfast. And then breakfast is literally a sandwich and you get, and you get your sandwich and you go sit outside because my grandmother did not want us in the house while she was then starting to prepare lunch. So once you're eating breakfast, she starts making lunch and you, and you stay outside until lunchtime and then lunch gets called and then you come in, you have to wash your hands, wash your face. And then you may sit down at the kitchen table. No children are allowed in the dining room area. We had to always sit in the kitchen and then she would turn on the radio for us. And then we would all listen to like, the, <laughs> like listen to whatever she had decided was worth listening to in the kitchen while the adults sat and had like their conversation and and we just like sat there eating and we were not allowed to leave the t- kitchen table until everybody had finished their food and you weren't allowed to leave the kitchen until all the dishes were done. 
So the kids then washed the dishes. And once the dishes were done, she then started on the dinner meal. And you just went back outside. <laughs> and that was like the the way my, my summer holidays always worked. It was just like, you knew when to come into the house because she was like, food's ready. I was like, boom. Dun-dun-dun-dun. So it was really like a fun experience. But then Christmas, oh gosh, like things like Christmas and Easter, those there are like strong traditions in our family of what you do. Easter, Good Friday, like the day before good like the, the Wednesday before Good Friday, we already start like prepping for Good Friday meals. So for us, a Good Friday meal is is just pickled fish, pickled curry fish, and hot cross buns. That's like all you eat all day long. And we don't care. We love it. <laughs> there's a there's this meme that one of my that one of my one of my friends sent around, which is just like a picture of a, <laughs> a picture of Barack Obama with like this like this like look on his face, like he smells something so good and he just looks so satisfied and his eyes are closed and he looks so joyous. And on there's just like a very South African thing or like where it says like, it's Good Friday, I can smell the pickled fish. (laughs) And that meme, that meme now flies around every Friday, every Good Friday because like that. And what's been really fun is introducing my, my partner to that tradition. And he now loves pickled fish. And he's very upset that he only gets to partake of it at Easter. And I, and like, and that's also the thing, like we also get very upset. So sometimes we'll be nice. And sometimes my mom will be like, okay, we'll make some pickled fish during the summer break. And you're just like, yes, but it's a special thing. So those kinds of things happen. I don't know. I think like food for us is just, is how we tell each other we love each other. It's because like I, our family, my family is not extremely verbal about saying things like, oh, I love you. I cherish you. I adore you. You're so wonderful, blah, blah, blah. But you know you're cared about if someone's taking your empty plate and just like filling it with food for you and saying, eat that. Or you know that you've been missed when you come for like a visit and literally I have a cousin that I visit sometimes when I'm in South Africa. And if I haven't seen her in ages, she will say, you'll show up randomly and she'll go, oh my gosh, I'll make you a quick tart. And she will bake a pie while you're there to eat fresh. Because she's like, no, you, you know, you have to eat something like she won't. And it won't just be like, you know, like some crackers. She will like go for it. And my, so it's something that we do. And I've also started, I've realized now living for, it's what I also do when people come to my house. Oh my God, I feed them so much food. People actually are bursting and I feel so bad because I know why I'm doing it, but I just can't stop. I just, I'm incapable of stopping. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, have you eaten enough? But here's some more. Like, here, eat this. Nibble on this. And just try this. Eat this. I can make you a sandwich. I could do this. I could do this. Yeah. So I'm a little bit, I've become my mother in my, my young age. <laughs> no. Uh, we all become our mothers. <laughs> in our middle, in my middle age, I've become my mother. And I'm actually okay with it. <laughs> You've been over in Europe for quite a long time now and before that, America. Do you have particular dishes that you long for beyond just the pickled fish? Are there things that you desperately wish you could have sometimes? Uh, ox tongue. <laughs> I thought, I, 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 I hear that face. Like, I don't even need to see it. I know that face because, like, it's literally everybody's face. Everyone just goes, Ooh! they all kind of, like, vomit in their mouth a little bit. But I'm... 
I really, what I've noticed is that I, if I want like ox tongue or ox tail, I have to go to a butcher, order it special. And every butcher I go to goes like, you sit, you serious? You just, you just want the tongue, you want the tail, you don't want any of the good stuff? And I'm like, no, that is the good stuff. Trust me. Um, yeah, my mom, so tell you a story of why I love the ox tongue so much. So my mother discovered this recipe for ox tongue, like sliced really thinly, sort of like an ox tongue lasagna. And it's like made with this like sweet honey mustard sauce. And then like, and then you layer it and sauce and layer and sauce. And then like breadcrumbs on top and then you bake in the oven. And then you eat that with roasted potatoes, sweet pumpkin, rice and salad. It's like really delish. So my mom made it one Christmas and I just loved it. And I was like, you have to make this every Christmas from now on, every Christmas. And then we went one Christmas, um, we then went to my, one of my cousins for Christmas lunch and <laughs> her brother, my other cousin was there and he had never had this time before. And he and I fought over the last spoonful. Literally, we practically came to blows. We had to be separated. And my cousin is, my cousin is, I was like, like early twenties. My cousin was a grown man and he was like, I will whip you. And I was like, I'd like to see you try put down your fork (laughs) cut to the next Christmas where we're all together and my mom to avoid scandal and like horror at the the dinner table my mom made us each our own Christmas present you both get your own and you both don't touch the other ones (laughs) like you both get your own ox tongue to consume by yourselves and we were like yeah we will So, so that's how much I love that recipe. And so my, when I moved to Germany, that's one of the first things my mom sent me was that recipe. And it took me about six months to actually work up the courage to like figure out how to go and ask a butcher in German for ox tongue and then like get over the fact. That, and then like when you get it, like looking at how much it costs. And then I remember calling my mom and saying, thank you so much for indulging me because I've realized that this is actually a very expensive cut of meat. And she was like, "Mm, you're welcome. Because my mom will make it for me every time I come home to South Africa. She knows that I'm coming home and she will make it. And that will always be, so when I get to my parents' house, that's like my first meal. When I get home to to South Africa, to my parents' house, the first meal is oxtang, roast potatoes, rice, sweet pumpkin, salad and a glass of wine like that is like I it's standard and I don't care like it could be like the hottest day in the history of like climate change and I would still like demand that that hot plate of food was in front of me (laughs) I bet your mum loves preparing it for you as well though because I bet she misses you and the thought of you coming home is such joy that she'd do it anyway I'm fairly sure Oh no, she absolutely loves doing it. And it's also like kind of her show of peace that like, she's like, "Mm -hmm, this is like a thing I do really well. Because she like knows the recipe out of her head already. She read the recipe and then she worked for the recipe and now she can just like make it. Whereas I still have to be like, (laughs) and it's like also translating the recipe from Afrikaans to German so that I can like find all the ingredients. And I'm just like, oh, okay, so that is that. Okay, Mm -mm -mm." okay. It's like now she's nickel you know and it's like so it's all very very fun stuff you should mention Afrikaans because um I think a lot of Europeans don't fully understand it as a language would you say that English Afrikaans was your first tongue your native tongue 
both are I'm, i consider myself bilingual i can i flip between both of them easily when i'm talking to my family the only thing is because i don't speak to people a lot in afrikaans here um because not a lot of people speak it the only people i actually speak afrikaans to are my family so they find it very funny that when i do start to speak afrikaans i naturally i instinctively also when i miss a word i used to, i would have previously before speaking german i would have just gone to the english word but now i swap in german words and my family laughs so loud sometimes they're just like that's that's not a thing golda and i'm like <laughs> but is there like, a relationship between german and afrikaans some of the sentence construction but i think probably most people would rather say that it is derived more from dutch and flemish like it's closer to flemish i i personally believe it's closer to flemish than it is to actually to actual dutch but it's got dutch german sentence construction so the closest german dialect if you want or language that you can find is um what they speak in free in north friesland uh which is plattdeutsch which is quite close so when i've been to visit friends in north friesland i actually understand their dialect and they and like i've had like some of their neighbors like say something like a little bit snide about somebody and i'll just be like you should be careful who you say those things around and they'll just be like ah! <laughs> that's so funny so i mean yeah so i've had those experiences but like in terms of like uh, just linguistical history afrikaans is a natural language it's probably the youngest language in the world but it is a it is a developed language with its own sentence structure its own yeah its own basis and roots and and it's taken from dutch but it's then expanded itself beyond that and it, we have our own like isms we have our we have like really it's just you can't there's nothing cooler than being able to speak afrikaans i think <laughs> i find it to be a very colorful language like when i get when i get like really like super excited or super angry i can't do that in english i'm physically incapable of doing it i can only emote fully and like aggressively so if i'm watching sports so if i'm watching cricket or i'm watching rugby i'm literally screaming in afrikaans there's, there's no sense of like english decorum coming out like no is, like the english language is not enough <laughs> when watching sports <laughs> <laughs> and um, do you think we might hear any afrikaans at the proms i don't know i actually like haven't really like thought about like whether or not we should bring in like my culture to the situation i don't i don't know it's you know these things are all up in flow and up in wait i have to watch and wait i think that's what it, that's what it's all about the anticipation dun, 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 dun. you know that song right yeah there we go we should play that game like recognize the song from this i'm terrible at stuff like that Um in terms of your feelings about not singing at the moment one thing is that you've done a little bit with the Met Gala but have you found it very hard to be at home or have you tried to take your usual positive spin on it all and see that maybe a sort of enforced sabbatical at home is not so bad when covid happened i mean like lucky or unlucky who's to know i was one of those singers who had been up until that moment actually working quite steadily almost practically non-stop. I mean, the day before Germany had a lockdown, I was singing a concert actually in London. 
So when I stepped into lockdown, I actually think a lot of my a lot of my work stress and needing yeah. a vacation kind of just like played into that. And so for the first three weeks, three, four weeks, I was quite fine not doing anything. My body, my body just went, oh, vacation, sweet. <laughs> um, and then my brain took a while to like catch up to the whole situation. And then the Met Gala happened in April, which was a lovely thing. And then Munich um, offered me a ghost recital, which I was also really grateful for. So I've been, it's really difficult to say, You've been, I've been lucky even in all of this madness that I've been able to do my job. You know, I, I've had a gig practically every month, even if it's just one gig, but I've done something. So I've like kept my mind active that way, but it still didn't stop work being canceled. Like I was still, at the same time as I was getting opportunities, I was, lo- I was still losing work. So it was really strange to be on the receiving end and on the having to let go end. I felt like there was moments where other, whereas other people who were just fully losing work can kind of just like solidify, oh, this is my work, this is my experience and I can just like be here in this and navigate this. Whereas for those of us that are sometimes working and still losing work, you can't really navigate loss because you have to still keep it together. Yeah, and that's so- how I felt as well. It's really, and it's it's actually really weird, number one, and actually quite emotionally exhausting. There was many a week when I would just be like, I actually do not have the emotional capacity to do anything and I just need to sleep for 24 hours because I've lost this job, this job, this job, but but, oh wait, I can't because I have to rehearse for this gig that's coming up that I just got like two weeks ago, these people asked me to do this gig and I need to give these people my full attention because there's now a different pressure involved in performing because it's on the internet. It's forever. It's never going to go away. So if it's a bad night. It's also learning how to record at home, which is not the easiest thing I discovered. No, it is not. It's like finding the right lighting. Like I remember for that Met Gala, we had... I had two separate rehearsals with the directing team where they, where we, and we did it all via Skype. So like they, literally having, having to like show them the space that I was going to be in with my, with my laptop. <laughs> like, so this is the space I was thinking of standing here and then like being directed. Oh, you need to lift that picture. You need to move all that stuff to another side. This table needs to be cleared. You can't have that. They rearrange that whole room. Oh, and you need to put a, put a strike where you're going to stand here. And then of course I'm, you know, you think to yourself, okay, so I like put the strap there. I put, I, I put down where I'm supposed to stand. But then two days later, because you're doing this so far in advance of like the actual performance two days later, when your fiance is busy vacuuming the study, he pulls up the, the strap and doesn't put it back. And now you've lost where you're supposed to stand. And then like, it was, that was just so traumatic. And then not really <laughs> That was the thing that was traumatic, not the playback that I was like trying to like work from my phone through my speakers. Like that was its own drama. The thing that was most traumatic was for me was I've lost where I'm supposed to stand and I don't know if I'm in the right position anymore. And he moved my computer from where it was. And I don't know if I'm like in the right frame anymore. I don't don't know what I'm doing. Like that was me to the director two minutes before I had to sing my aria. I don't know. Is everything okay? Like, I don't know. Am I in the right place? Like someone please tell me what I'm doing. I'm so scared. (laughs) 
it's ridiculous. It was kind of a little bit ridiculous because I was like, and I remember I said to somebody, I think I told you this actually, I swear to you, if this is going to be the kind of career that I'm expected to have, I quit singing because I can't. I can't be expected to keep all of this in mind while I'm also trying not to like spike a microphone and also just sound like I know what I'm doing vocally anymore because it's just... Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, I was like, I can't. I I didn't sign up for this. No. (laughs) This was not the job I signed up for. I did not sign up to be a YouTube star. That's a very, very different job description. Thank you very much. Yes, it really is. And I also feel that you and I, much as we'd like to consider ourselves very young, which we will be forever, obviously. Forever. um, That we're slightly the wrong generation. Because if we were 15 years younger, this would come as a second nature. Because like we didn't grow up this kind of stuff. I mean, you were playing outside in your grandma's garden. Weren't fiddling around with a mobile phone. (laughs) But the thing is, it's so strange. We're also the generation that the internet started with. So, like, we're also the generation that, like, created MySpace pages and all of these things. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I did that. Like, and we had to do the HTML and, like, the JavaScript because that was the only way you could actually create a website. Like, we had to learn. But, like, once I didn't have to do that anymore, my brain just went, okay, out of your sphere of reference, dump it, put in something that you actually need. Now I really wish that I had kept the stuff that I dumped out of my brain. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't know that it would have been helpful because it's all moved on to such a massive degree, partly because of the <laughs> pandemic as well. I think people have come up with all sorts of novel ways of doing everything. It's been a daily challenge, hasn't it? And it's also therefore provoking a challenge about what we do in the future, what we look towards. And you and I had a conversation uh, only a few days ago, didn't we, about about what the future holds, where where the arts world should go. We've talked about some of that, but what we should say is that, or what I'd like to hear from you is, creativity has to go somewhere. What would you like to see happen in the coming months? Oh, jeez. Sorry. I would, <laughs> such a big question for such a tiny brain. <laughs> My brain feels really like not equipped for this question, but I'm going to try. What I want, what I think is essential is like what I what I said previously that art, creative arts especially, needs to kind of be using this time to get ahead of the curve. So it shouldn't, as much as, yes, we're all talking about like, how are we going to make sure that these places, that these theatres, these spaces remain open for us um, so they need their funding. But what we also need to be thinking of is how do we, our job right now, I think, is to foster a culture of hope. What I always try to tell people is we're we're not going back. Things will not go, they will not be the same as they were before. That is just the nature of life. You have to move forward. So what we have to kind of be discussing amongst ourselves is, number one, the situation that that brought us here. What about that can no longer function? The notion of like artists having to pay out of pocket before arriving at gigs, those notions don't function, especially in a situation where at any moment, especially if there's no vaccine, especially if the, a new pandemic comes out, you know, Bill Gates is already talking about the next flu that we need to be worried about <laughs> that's trying to like, you know, knock out the human race. So if we're running on that premise, we need to be thinking of what about our business and our industry does not serve 
And it does not, so it means that theaters need to start thinking more about more about how they can make the lives of these artists that they're asking to actually risk a lot. How, because like that is what we, the people are going to be asking us to do because like, it's, you know, somehow scientifically things are being established that we could potentially be at higher risk than other people, but we still want to do our job. So our job, even though freelance and by choice, is still a high risk job. How people, how people who are wanting us to do our job at the, the best level possible, how are they making sure that we can do that? I mean, people do that with athletes all the time, you know, athletes get to stay in athlete villages where they can, during Olympics and all of those things, athletes get um, um, special, special dispensation for their training and all of these things. So all of this also needs to be taken into account. So it can't just be like, oh, force measure, blah sorry, we had to close the doors because of a pandemic, but I'm still out of pocket for like the booking that I had to make. And it shouldn't necessarily be on the shoulders of, on the shoulders of the individual. It needs to, these expenses need to be shared. And because that means that the investment is also shared. We also, like I said, we need to take responsibility as creators and being part of production. We're not just output machines we are actually adding value to the productions that people are creating and therefore that contribution should be respected not in just the sense of oh well you stand on stage and you do a thing or oh well you you play in the pit and you do a thing or oh you you stand there and play no what i'm doing is i'm adding value in the rehearsal room all of those things because i'm bringing that time that also needs to be equate worked into the equation so things like I feel like honestly per diem needs to be like back on the table with like all contracts. Weekly per diems need to be back on the table with all contracts, especially long-term contracts and operatic contracts. Even if it's not a large per diem, but it needs to be back on the table because we, we need to live to do the job and we need to eat and we can't just be waiting until the first performance to get that paycheck to then make up for it. Because God forbid you don't make it to the first performance. And that and what I'm asking for, basically what I'm asking for is for people to act in more good faith. I mean, that was the thing that happened with me and the proms is that I remember when they said that they wanted to go ahead, they even still asked me if I wanted to still be a part of it because they understood the risk, my, the health risk that I could potentially be taking to come there because I have to fly like who knows what the airplane's going to be like. I still have, and I still have to get a visa. I, there's a lot of stuff that it entails for me to do. And they are willing to meet me and act in good faith. And so I said, well, if you act in good faith, then I will act in good faith. But, I, but, I, but it was very much a conversation of we each have to equally be losing or equally be gaining. And I prefer to think of it as we're equally gaining from the experience, but everybody has to act in good faith and it shouldn't be protectionist contract making where it's just the theater must protect itself. Are we not a part of the theatrical experience? Don't we always get like told, oh, but you're a part of this theatrical family. Like then act like it. That's what I really appreciated about Munich is that they've asked, they've tried to take care of the people that they can take care of that's part of their theatrical family. If they knew that, if they know that guests, that they knew that guests were around in Germany nearby, close by, feeling safe enough to travel, they said, if you are willing to travel, we are willing to say, here's a space where you can create art and we will, we will make it as safe as we can for you 
because we want you to ha- we want you to still be able to do your job and to show people that your job has value and that and i think like that's that's some there's something to be said about acting in good faith i don't know i don't know how better else to say it it's just like you know it's like with those old things of like when kings used to have poison tasters <laughs> Like, I just need you not to have a poison taste near the table. It's like, drink your wine because <laughs> I'm drinking my wine. You know? <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's like, if we're all going to be, if we're all wanting to eat from the same festive table, we must all eat, the same, eat with the notion that we will all eat until we are each full and not beyond. And we only take what we need so that everybody has a chance so that the next person who comes to the table doesn't just eat scraps, but they can also. And somebody isn't making someone taste the food to check if it's poisonous because they think that they're better than everybody else. It's that kind of method, that, that, that kind of methodology. Thank you to Golda for joining me and talking about the excitement of appearing at the last night of the proms. About classical music inspiring a little girl from the southernmost tip of the African continent how small dreams have turned into pinch-me moments, and about the extraordinary community she grew up in in South Africa, where food means family, and moving forwards about fostering a culture of hope. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner, and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune into the next episode where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love.